0: Welcome to the Fustel Fit Podcast with your host, Nicola Fustel. Straight talking, body positive coach and personal trainer, Nicola brings you your weekly guide to
1: finding real health and fitness and to live the life you deserve. Welcome to episode seven of the Feustal Fit health and fitness podcast, also available on local radio if you are around Hazer- Hillingdon area on 91.8 Hazer FM. I was fortunate enough to catch up with Chris Sandel last week. So we talk about nutrition, eating disorders, and we debunk some nutrition myths. I hope you're going to enjoy this episode. Welcome, Chris Sandal.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm really excited to have you on the show because I've been listening to your podcast for quite a few months now and I'm trying to actually go back to the beginning and listen to them all because I'm finding so much value in them and um, being a fitness professional, having a bit of nutrition knowledge myself, I find it so hard even with just having the basic knowledge to know who to then go to for the next step and I found your podcast really informative and also not trying to sell me into the next diet. And from the background that I've come from with disordered eating, I find that's, you know, really, really good to have somebody you can actually trust with their nutrition information. So I really appreciate having you on the show today.
0: Oh, well, look, that's like really lovely for you to say all that. Um, and look, it is I totally get where you're coming from, because I think it is a very difficult thing to Uh, discover in terms of what is true, what is not true, what should you be following. I mean even as a as a health professional and doing this for a living um, there are a lot of times where I'm like I just don't know the answer and so for the lay people I really do feel for them because there is just so much information is put out there as gospel when actually a lot of it is on pretty shaky ground.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people then give you some good information, but then there's a, a sneaky way to get you into then buying a, a diet product.
0: Yeah, I had someone message me recently who signed up to my mailing list and he was like, I've been on your mailing list a while and you haven't tried to sell me anything. What's going on? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I work with clients and that is pretty much my, my business model and that happens twice a year. And apart from that, I'm just providing as much free content as, as I can
1: which is great. And then people are really benefiting from it. Um, But one thing that really stood out for me when I spoke to you before a few months ago, is that you're doing all of this work, but you haven't personally had an experience of having an eating disorder or disordered eating. Can you tell me how you got passionate about helping this type of client?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, my journey into this stuff started when I was 21 i moved over from sydney i'm originally from from sydney australia i studied a business degree after finishing school finished out at age 21 and had absolutely no idea what i wanted to do so i thought i would do the kind of standard gap year or gap two years travel around europe and and see if i could work out like who i was what i wanted to do and Came over to the UK and moved in with a couple who I knew, known that very briefly before coming over here. And up until this stage, I had never really thought about food at all. I am very lucky, growing up in a household where my mom never dieted. There was never really diet talk um, at all, never body talk at all. I'm very sort of genetically blessed. I was always um, lean, regardless of what I what I did, and I just never really thought about food at all apart from i'm going to eat whatever tastes good and initially when i was living at home and going to school that was pretty good healthy food that my my mom predominantly would cook um, but as i went off to university and i was still living at home while going to university i was then much more in charge of the food that i eat and at that stage i just wanted to eat things that tasted good and had a diet that was pretty terrible of like KFC and McDonald's and Burger King and kebabs and just really paid zero attention to um, food apart from like the taste perspective of it. Um, Largely because I'm like I'm not putting on weight so obviously it doesn't matter what I what I ate and that was really the only connection I had at that stage. And so I moved over to the UK and when I, I got over here. Um, one of the, the girls in the couple who I was moved in with was doing a, a detox for four weeks and she suggested that maybe I do it with her. And at that stage I had pretty terrible skin. It was something that I dealt with for probably about three years, four years, something like that. And I would go to the doctor, I'd be put on some antibiotics over three months, my skin would get better. The course of antibiotics would end, it would start getting bad again and I would go back. And just that sort of on and off for, um, as I said, like three or four years. And again, never making the connection of maybe it's got something to do with what I'm eating. Um, And so I did this detox with her. And over the course of like four weeks, I noticed real improvements in my skin. I noticed improvements in my energy and my sleep. And um, it was just the first time that I ever made a connection between what I was eating and then the the effect that it had on uh, my body and look, I might just want to add to this is I'm not an advocate of doing detoxes. I don't do them with clients anymore. Uh, the one that I did was very much a like vegan diet, but getting people to, or getting me to eat a lot of food, lots of fruits and vegetables. There was no limit on how much or how many calories I could eat. And the important thing for me was not the detox per se, but what happened afterwards, which is I started to include more and more of those foods within my diet. I started to eat healthier, I started to do more of my own cooking. It actually helped me long-term, which is typically the opposite of what happens for most people when they go on a detox, they're already restricting, they then restrict even more and it's pretty much a disaster for them. So I just wanted to make sure that people understand this. This is not what I normally recommended. I got lucky in the way that it worked out for me. Um, but because of going through that experience, I started to discover food and discover the importance of food, and started to just find it really interesting reading about this stuff. And at some point, decided to uh, study nutrition, and that this was the the thing that I'd been looking for in terms of what I wanted to do for a job. So I studied at the College of Naturopathic Medicine, so C N M in London, and did that between two thousand and six and two thousand and eight. Um, And that was very much just basic training around how to be a nutritionist. It was very naturopathic in its um, teachings. And it was more sort of later on that I started to then look at more of the disordered eating and eating disorder side of things. And it happened very much by, by chance based on the people who started showing up in my practice. So I would, at that stage, wasn't specializing in anything. And it was just whoever got in contact and wanted to see me, I would happily see them and and help them out. And what I found was that more and more I was getting women who were in their late 20s, who were in their early 30s, who were having a, a whole list of different symptoms that they were struggling with, whether it be digestion or sleep or they'd lost their period or all of these different issues and at the same time they're telling me that they're wanting to lose weight and I'd then be seeing them and I'd be looking at these women thinking there that there isn't a lot of weight for you to lose if anything and looking at them and seeing how how thin they already were and I'm not implying that that's the only people who are affected by disordered eating but it was very obvious to me then at the time that something didn't really match up and when we would then start to look at their food log, I was realizing that they, they barely were eating anything. So they were living off green smoothies. They were living off salads. They would feel terrible if they ate a croissant or they ate some chocolate. And it was like this assault on their personal character. And it was a real failing of who they were. And I just started to realize that this wasn't about nutrition. Like sure, nutrition could help in terms of they needed more energy, they needed more uh, calories or different foods to be supporting their body but a lot of this was coming from like the mental emotional side of things and because more of these people were coming into my practice i just started reading more and more on this topic and it was something i became very fascinated in and just really wanted to help uh, people who are really struggling with this stuff and so over the last i don't know three four five years this has been one of those areas that i've've really started to prioritize and become like a real specialization for me. And that's now makes up about 50% of the the people I work with.
1: And so how did you come to the name Seven Health?
0: So Seven Health, it was, there is no great story behind it. Um, One of my friends, we were chatting about it and he, he kind of suggested the idea of, he'd always said Seven for a company name, it sounded kind of appealing. And I just then started to think about it. Terms of, I wanted to be about everyday health, and so seven seven days in the week, like health for every day, was kind of the the reason behind the the name. But that's that's kind of it. There's nothing nothing too deep about it.
1: And your podcast, the initial introduction, you say um, health that goes more than what you look like. Yeah. So when you talk about real health, what do you mean by that?
0: So what I find these days is that. The majority of people, when they think about health, they think about it from an aesthetic perspective. And what people are trying to do when they say that they're wanting to get healthy, in adverted commas, is they normally mean that I want to lose weight or I want to change my body so that it appears healthier. Because what most people think is if I appear healthier, then I am healthier. And I would also add to this concept of the appearance of health is People want to do the things that make them healthy that other people also consider healthy. So if I was to say to someone, I think you should have a jacket potato for lunch, there can be resistance with the, but what will my colleagues think? They might not think that that's a healthy food. And so people want to get healthy by having green smoothies or by having salad or by having things that if someone is looking at them, they will be thinking, oh, this person must be healthy. And so for me, both of those things are a little bit dangerous because how someone looks doesn't necessarily translate to how healthy they are and how many kind of healthy foods in inverted commas don't necessarily mean that someone is getting the nutrients, the support that their body really needs. And so when I'm working with people, I want to get away from like the appearance of health and work out what genuinely works for this person, like not what works on paper, what, what works in reality. So finding foods that do actually support their body. And this can be some of the quote unquote healthy foods. And so a lot of the healthy foods then that people think they should be eating may also not be so good for them. And so there'll be certain healthy foods that they should be including. There'll be certain healthy foods that they shouldn't be including. And the same is true of unhealthier foods. There might be lots of foods that people would label as unhealthy, but when people start to actually pay attention to their body when they eat them, they genuinely work for them. So what I want to do through all this is getting people to understand what actually works for them and for their body as opposed to what they've been told to do or just following advice blindly, which is uh, unfortunately what so many people seem to do these days.
1: I think that's just because people are misinformed. So you see somebody doing something and then you think that's how I should be doing it. Or as you said, looking at somebody based on their appearance. If you think that they appear healthy and then whatever they're eating, you think, well, I need to eat what they're eating to to look like them. Yeah, definitely. And I think
0: that's got worse in more recent times because of things like Instagram, because of things like Mm -hmm. Facebook, where people are very much curating the parts of their life that they want you to see. Yeah. And so they'll show you this healthy meal that they're eating and make out that this is amazing and nourishing and they're in such this fantastic place in terms of their body journey and their relationships and their life, etc. And behind closed doors, the story is very different to this. And so I think because of that's what's often presented and often presented by people who are meant to be uh, the beacons of health people then get this misguided idea about what healthy eating really looks like
1: yeah and that's exactly what i'm really passionate about because i feel like i was one of those people i i followed the instagram people and thought you know bodybuilding is the next thing to do especially as a fitness professional because that's you know, going to be a good promotion to your clients to show them you're not just giving them the advice, you're also doing it yourself. And if you can edit your body in a certain way, even if it's the extreme, and maybe your clients wouldn't want to do that, they'd know that you had the dedication and the passion to do it, the willpower, and therefore, you'd be a good role model to them. And so I became one of those Instagram people doing the bodybuilding and thinking that the picture of health was actually that ripped physique with very low body fat which was so far from the truth, which is why I'm so passionate now about getting the message out there that that's not the case. And what you see is not necessarily what's going on underneath.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of this facade of I want people to know that I walk my talk. And that isn't just about how you look or the photos of the food that you put up. It's like every part of you in terms of like what people see and what I talk about is very much my real life. I don't Uh, preach in terms of that I always eat healthy food or always eat clean or any of those things because I don't. I eat in a very normal manner. I eat very functionally. A lot of the time, I wouldn't take a photo of what I'm eating because no one would want to see it because it is very boring. But I
1: have to say your profile picture I love on Facebook where you're sitting there with a load of wine around you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that was a a friend's wedding in in France where we then went to, to a nice a nice meal and I was uh, <laughs> surrounded by wine and look I'm a very normal everyday guy like I enjoy going out for a drink I enjoy like um pizzas and burgers just like everyone else and I think that people need to get to that place of being okay with all of those things and not everyone has to eat in that way or drink in that way everyone has to buy what works for them but yeah. I really do want uh people to be very authentic and honest with what they're putting out there and also how that really affects them as opposed to this real facade, which is unfortunately what I see all too often.
1: Yeah. And can I ask you about diets? Like what actually happens to you when you diet and why are diets bad for you?
0: So this is a bit of a tricky one because you're lumping a huge amount of different types of things all into one category. But what I think you're meaning by that question is when you say dieting, you mean something that is restricting, and that can be restricting carbohydrates, it can be restricting fats, it can be just by restricting those things, you're restricting calories. Yeah. And what typically happens when someone does that is the body needs energy, and it needs a lot of energy to get by to do all the functions that it has to do on a day-to-day basis, And so when people start to decrease the amount of energy coming in and that this is way lower than what the body needs to be able to function, it doesn't really just sit back and take that. It starts to make changes to try and remedy that situation. And there's two big changes that it makes. The first is it tries to reduce your energy expenditure and it does this by making you more lethargic, by making you more tired, by not wanting you to move your body, by shutting off certain functions or decreasing certain functions. So, if before your body used to give 300 calories to your digestion, now it's only going to give 200. If it used to prioritize you having a healthy period, it's like, we don't want you to be getting pregnant right now. So, we're going to turn down a lot of the hormones that are important for that and we're going to save on our energy expenditure as part of that. So it tries to pull everything down because it's trying to save you. It's trying to think of your long-term future, and it's trying to get you out of that like very immediate danger that it thinks it's, is happening. And the other side of that is it then wants you to eat more. It wants you to go out and find food and find uh, energy to then bring the body back into that homeostasis where it can start to turn functions back on. It can start to be able to work properly. So over time, people start to get hungrier and hungrier, or they start to get cravings for certain foods. And those cravings are normally for really calorie dense foods that are easy to turn into energy that you barely need to chew. So things like chocolate or burgers or ice cream or whatever someone's favorite like treats are. And this is purely just from a physiological perspective, like your body is trying to save you and help you out. Like it has evolved over millions of years when it didn't understand diets. All it understood was we had periods of famine and we had periods where there is food available. And what it is trying to do is to look around and say, there is food available. We are not in a famine. We need you to eat so that we can get you out of this situation. And so really, when I'm thinking about a lot of this stuff, it just comes down to pure physiology for a lot of people. And there's, there are emotional reasons. There are a lot more to this than just that. But I mean, I'm thinking like what diet to do at a basic level. It's really start to work against our body's like natural state, our natural physiology, and really start to, to kind of push against that stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. And I just listened to, again, I've listened to it a couple of times now, the starvation experiment that you, one of your podcasts. And I really love that episode because yeah. um, even listening to it now, as I'm going further into my journey of body acceptance and, you know, never dieting again. And just looking back at my old mind, I wouldn't have heard it, those words in the same way because that's exactly how I was living. I, I had no idea that I was actually starving my body. And so, the, you know, those guys, you I think you said they're on 1,600 or 1,400
0: calories? Yeah. So the Minnesota starvation experiment, it was done back in the end of the Second World War. There was a situation where it looked like large parts of Europe, Asia were going to be in famine. And so they wanted to start to investigate what happens to the body when put through this kind of situation. So they got, I think it was 26 or 32 um guys who were all um fit healthy guys and through this experiment they cut them down to 1600 calories a day and had them have eat that amount of food for a period of 26 weeks and then just watched what would happen in terms of their body in terms of like physiological mental um social etc just analyzing all of those different characteristics
1: yeah, because it's funny, I, I actually have a client now, she's female, but she eats 1600 calories and she just likes to, she doesn't want to go crazy on it, but she does measure it. And And I tell her that maybe you're not eating enough, especially when you're exercising. And she always says to me, no, no, I'm not hungry. I just don't want to eat anymore. Do you think that hunger is a good indication of how much you should be eating?
0: Um. Yes and no. So when someone is a very normal eater, when someone is not trying to control their food, uh, when someone is in a fairly low stress environment, I think hunger can be a very good cue. The problem is that if you are someone who has for three, four, five years, a decade, two decades or whatever, fought against your hunger, fought against your body signals, then the feedback and your ability to read that is going to be very messed up. And so your ability to accurately decipher when you're hungry and when you're not might not be so great. And what I find in those situations, people are either totally numb to hunger until it's screaming at 10 out of 10, and they're suddenly ravenous. So it's either like on or off. There is no like degrees, there's no shades of gray with it in those mm-hmm. situations. But even for people who, are very normal eaters; They don't have issues around food. Like I would be a great example of this. There'll be days where I'm working and I'm just getting through emails. I'm having to deal with clients and I've had my breakfast and then it's like two o'clock in the afternoon and I suddenly stand up. I haven't felt hungry at all, but I'm then suddenly like, wow, okay, I need to go and eat and I need to go and eat now, right now because I'm suddenly so overcome by like being hungry or feeling tired or dizzy or whatever, because I've just been so focused in on doing the work that I'm trying to do. And because when you're in that state, you're not getting the feedback that you need from your body. You're not listening to it in the way that you possibly should. And so in those situations, I would say that hunger for me didn't give me the, the message that I, I needed because I wasn't in the state to allow that to happen. Yep. So yes, I think hunger can be useful, but for, for a lot of the time when I'm working with clients in um, the early days with this stuff, I will much prefer to preference that they have eating consistency over following their hunger. So I'll say to them, you know what, I want you to have, for example, three main meals and I want you to have two snacks. And I want you to sit down to those meals, even if you're not hungry. And if you start eating and you're halfway through and you're still not hungry, that's fine. Just stop eating. But what typically happens is when people start eating as part of that meal, they're like, oh, actually, no, I am really hungry. And so I want to allow people to have those moments where they take the time to allow that to happen if it's going to happen, as opposed to just waiting to the point of being like ravenous and then deciding to eat, which is what most people do. And then they find themselves in a situation like, why am I craving all of this junk food? it's like you're craving this junk food because you've gone way past the point of actually being normally hungry and you're now at a place where your body is just screaming out and you're doing things purely for your palate as opposed to any other reason so i think yeah consistency for me uh often trumps hunger to start with just because hunger is not a great feedback for a lot of people
1: so will that be because their blood sugar has gone so low
0: Um, It could be because blood sugar has gone so low. I mean, it's normally when things are like when they get to that point of being ravenous and things are really screaming out, it's because their blood sugar has gone so low. So it's normally not until that point that they actually hear that message. And what should have happened is when there was a little bit of a dip before or after a couple of hours, they should have got that message. But they're just so numb to it that it's only when it's very, very loud do they start to hear it.
1: That's interesting because when I was doing CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, many years ago yep. when I was in the depth of my bulimia, so to regulate me was to regulate my behaviours and so I had to follow an eat- a food plan where I had to have carbohydrates every three hours. Yep. So whether I was hungry or not, it was just to stabilise my blood sugar so I yep. didn't have a big crash and then be craving a binge and having lots of food. But then moving on from that and living my life, trying to regulate it by myself, but at the same time I was still trying to change my body. I then fell into the trap, which most people are in, I think, where they try to override their hunger because they're trying to diet, yeah, or they think that they that you know they're pigging out or whatever. They want to reduce the amount of food that they're eating. So there's all these tricks to either bump up your food with like no calorie, no carb, no nutrient foods, just to make your meal a bit bigger so you feel full. drinking water eating really slowly eating off a small plate so you do all of these things and you become so far away from your body and listening to it intuitively whether you're hungry or full how do you go from a place like that for so many years to then listening and actually realizing when you are hungry
0: so i think the the way that you go through that is is a process and you start like trying different things out um I would say if you are hungry, you always need to eat. So I think any time that you're in a position where you start trying to override, then no, no, I'm not hungry. No, no, look, I'll, I'll just go another couple of hours. Like that's always going to end badly. And I, whenever I'm working with someone and they start binging, um, I always look at let's what see what happened earlier in the day or what you did yesterday, and that is always preceded by some form of restriction. And getting someone to realize that is also like really important where it's like no, it's not got to do with willpower, and no it's not got to do with the fact that you're weak. it's got to do with pure physiology. you didn't need an, eat any food or you didn't eat very much food and at some point your body's just like, we need to eat and that's why you find yourself here. So I guess getting people to not be doing any of the restriction is really important. Also getting people to not judge their food choices. Um, because I think a lot of it also stems from people trying to override what they want to eat or what they're desiring, because it doesn't fit into the quote unquote, like healthy category. So it's the, you know what? I really crave like a really big carbohydrate rich meal. Um, but you know what, what I'm going to have instead is a salad and that salad should be able to satisfy me. And the more people continue to do that and try and work against what they're really craving, the more that they'll then find themselves in a position where it feels like they're uncontrollable around food and it's all overwhelming. So I guess getting away from the judgment and also listening more to someone's body and also trying certain things out and seeing what happens. And again, doing that in a non-judgmental way. So you know what, let's have you eat Like if the the original schedule was you're eating every three hours, let's see what happens when we bump it up to three and a half hours or four hours. Or let's see what happens when you have a bigger breakfast or you have a bigger lunch and see what happens and play around with it in a very curious way, but always with the intention of I am trying to support my body as opposed to I'm trying to starve my body or I'm trying to regulate my weight or any of these other things. And then the, the third piece I would say to this is getting people to listen to their symptoms because the symptoms that someone gets is normally pretty much in de- direct proportion to a lot of the food and lifestyle habits that someone is keeping up. So if someone is consistently feeling very tired, then you know what? It's probably best that they're not going to the gym every day because that's going to be making it worse. If someone's having problems with their sleep, a lot of the time from my perspective, it's you're not eating enough during the day to allow your body to actually switch off and to do the repair work through the night. So that could be indicating that you need to have more foods coming in. If someone's not getting their cycle, if someone's getting lots of cold hands and feet, if they're getting digestive upsets, all of these different things are indicating that the body's not working the way that it should be and that we either need to have more calories or more resources coming in, or we need to be having different forms of certain foods depending on if people are reacting to certain things. But I think it's always within mind of how can I be giving the body an abundance of what it needs to be able to function properly as opposed to the mentality that most people take of how can I be giving the body the absolute bare bones minimum it needs to survive so I can be a certain weight or fit into a certain dress size.
1: Well, that's the thing I want to ask you, because I'm thinking of, of a guy who I spoke to just recently, and he's, he was obese, so he's okay. already lost a load of weight, and he's, he's diabetic type 2, and his doctor said to him, you need to lose weight, and they haven't told him how. So okay. they've just left him out there, and he's not eat, he, when he told me what he's eating, he's probably eating around 1,200 calories, and he's coming to my class, you know, doing a spin class and really going vigorously, he's doing that five times a week and he can't sleep and he's tired and that's what it was you just mentioned about being tired and having to eat more so for somebody like him he's thinking but the doctors told me i need to lose weight i've obviously got extra fat on me for energy you know and you're telling me i need to eat more
0: the thing with all of this is like there's sustainable weight loss and then there's unsustainable weight loss and so if you look at something like the biggest loser i think that is the perfect example of unsustainable weight loss where you're telling someone to do an inordinate amount of exercise versus you're alongside getting them to eat a tiny amount of calories and you're just getting them to do that day after day, week after week. And the thing with something like that is, it's totally unsustainable. At some point, the body is going to fight back and that weight is all gonna be regained and normally more uh, for good measure. And I'm not a big one of getting people to focus on weight. I don't think it normally yields particularly good results. But if someone is going down that path of, you know what, I think I would be in better health if I was weighing a certain amount less, then that approach still needs to be taken about in a very sustainable way. So it's like, what are the things that I could do that would most likely be able to help me with this, but also be retaining my health and retaining my ability to Uh, be symptom-free in terms of my sleep and cycle and all of those things. So it might be, you know what? I could be increasing the amount of vegetables that I have. I could be getting a little bit more sleep. I could be dealing with the stress. Like there's a huge amount of issues around stress that I don't think people are really appreciating in terms of how much of an impact that has on someone's um, physiology and the amount of weight that they either lose or store or all of those things. So for, for, the thing I would say with all this is starting to really understand like where that problem is coming from and how someone can then deal with that in a sustainable way. And that may mean that someone does stuff that improves their health and reduces their uh, issues in terms of diabetes or insulin resistance, and it has no change on their weight, or it might mean that they do all of these things and their weight actually gets reduced. Like the weight doesn't necessarily have to come down for someone to improve their health and someone losing weight doesn't necessarily improve someone's health. And so the problem I find with all of this is a lot of my message and a lot of people who I really respect who talk about this stuff, there is nothing sexy about it. Like it's really easy to sell uh, everyone should go ketogenic, everyone should do a 12-day a uh, 12-day challenge or a 21-day challenge or that you should do this, like, 1200 calorie day diet for a month and let's see how much weight you can lose. Like, all of those things are appealing because they're novel, because they're sexy, because they make, like, dramatic changes versus when you're encouraging someone, you know what, maybe you should do a little bit more walking. Maybe you should start to get to bed a little early or maybe you should start to do a little bit more of your own cooking and doing these things in a very sort of sustainable, normal way. People don't want to hear about it because they're like, well, like, how's that ever going to make a difference? Because people are expecting to see a difference in a very, very short space of time.
1: But I think that's also because we're sold that through the media. And if you have dieted before and it has worked initially, even though you failed because you've then gone back to it, but it is always quick results, isn't it? There's a lot of plans out there that are 12-week plans or six-week abs. You know, it's always packaged really nice, like you're saying.
0: Yeah. And I, so what I'm doing when I'm working with clients is I want to create something that we're doing together in terms of how you eat and how you move and how you sleep and all of the things that I'm encouraging you to do that in a year's time, in three years time, in five years time, you're still able to do all of these things. And you found a way to make that part of your everyday lifestyle. And you're not some social pariah where you're having to do all of these crazy stuff around food like anytime you go to a restaurant you're having to check out the menu beforehand to work out what you're going to be able to eat and you're having to forego social occasions or you're not able to like do lots of things because obviously they're not available on your plan like i'm trying to find ways that people can be healthier and still be a regular member of society and i think that's really important because otherwise people either a aren't able to keep it up or B, the only way they are able to keep it up is to, for all intensive purposes, develop an eating disorder or disordered eating.
1: Yeah. And talking about diets and coming out the other side and people regaining the weight, can I ask you about set point and metabolic damage?
0: So the there's a an idea or a theory called the weight set point theory, and this is an idea that your body has a specific a specific. Um, weight set point that it likes to sit in. And it's not a exact weight. It's normally a range of about 10% of your body weight that it will like to sit in. And that can go up a little bit or can come down a little bit. But as most people will probably realize, like if they put on one or two pounds or drop one or two pounds, most of the time that's not a huge amount of effort if someone's sitting fairly in the middle of their range. But to move out of that range even more takes a, a lot more effort because Typically, your body wants to sit in a particular zone. And what we find is that the more that someone diets and restricts and uh, does those kind of behaviors, the more likely someone is to push up that weight set point. So that's why when you have someone who, like in their early 20s, they went on their first diet, and then we tap to, to them, like at age 45, age 50, and they've been dieting for the last 30 years. And now they're 30, 40, 50 pounds heavier than where they started. So with each one of those diets, it's just ratcheted that little um, weight set point up. And the thing that they talk about in terms of metabolic damage, and I don't know how uh, exactly correct that terminology is, but what it means is basically your body starts functioning less and less uh, effectively. And what it starts to do is Take that number up just higher and higher. So you're sitting at a higher level. It feels happier at a higher level the more someone continues to diet and work against their physiology.
1: So, can you ever lower your set point?
0: You can, I think, lower your set point. But what I would say is it's not something that happens overnight. It takes time for that to happen. And I would say the way that that typically happens is by giving the body plenty of rest, plenty of repair by giving it movement that it likes, by giving it as stress-free an environment as possible. And when I say stress-free, I think stress is one of those buzzwords that people talk about. Stress isn't inherently bad. It's only a problem if you've got more and more stress on top of a diet and lifestyle that is not able to manage that. So being able to manage the stress that you have, having people eat uh, more, more of their diet be kind of whole and unprocessed foods. But again, that is also something that people have to work towards because if you're coming from a very disordered eating uh, perspective around food and you instantly try and shift to these are the healthy foods, I should be eating only home-cooked food and I should only be eating whole grains or uh, chicken breasts or whatever it may be, if you try and impose that and force it on someone, there's likely to be a backlash. But the more that someone is okay with eating all the foods and the more that they get over the novelty of having ice cream at every meal or pizza or all of those things and get to a place where they're okay with eating, the more that they start to naturally include more of those things in their diet. And I think through that process, you can start to pull your weight set point down. But what I would say with that is you don't ultimately have control over that stuff. If it starts to happen, then great. If it doesn't, then there is not a lot that you can do about that. And I think people have to be a lot more accepting around that and do the things that support health. And if weight comes off, then so be it, versus doing the things to control weight, which often lead to damaging someone's health um through the process
1: yeah and that's the problem with society isn't it and going back to what we mentioned earlier where people assume that if you're thinner that you're healthier
0: yeah definitely and for the the majority of clients that i work with a lot of them have like quote-unquote perfect bodies like bodies that a lot of society would trade a lot of money to be living in And when I then speak to these women, they are anything but healthy. And when I say that, I mean from a physical perspective, but also from a mental, emotional perspective. So even though that most people would look at them and think, wow, they must just have so much body confidence. They must walk into a room and just be like loving the fact that they're turning heads. These are women who are terrified, who don't feel comfortable in their body, who are plagued with all these symptoms despite on the outside appearing like they have it all.
1: See, with that, I honestly feel that the key to body image is the way that you see yourself because you could have the body that everybody then admires and aspires to look like, but you're not healthy, you're not right in your mind. So, you know, changing your body doesn't change you. You have to change your mind.
0: Correct. And this is the thing that I talk a lot about with clients and work on with them, that the way to be okay with how you feel within your own skin and comfortable within your own body and all of that isn't about changing the external, it's about changing the internal. So what are the things that you say to yourself? What are the past events that you focus on? Uh, What are the future events or future scenarios you keep replaying in your mind? What are all of these things that you're creating in your head because those dictate the experience? Because if you were to look at someone who has a really good body image and feels comfortable in their own skin and someone who has a terrible body image and feels horrible in their own skin, the difference between those two people is not how they look aesthetically. It's what is going on inside their head, what they're constantly saying to themselves. And so getting people to understand that is really important. And that doesn't mean that someone can't want to make changes to their body. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Where I see it being a problem is when people are like, ah, I will be happier when X happens or I'm putting my life on hold in a sense until I get to this point. Um, Or when they start doing things to try and alter their body, that is then negatively impacting on their health. So that's when I think it is becoming a problem.
1: So I'm going to ask you a little bit about disordered eating because to have an eating disorder, you have to fit in a box that the GPs have in black and white that you are either this way or You said these keywords, so then you put into that box. But I do believe that the people outside of that box, there are many and many that have disordered eating and generally through dieting and just becoming messed up with food mentally. So some of those people, I think, would maybe hide their disordered eating by, you know, becoming vegetarian. And I actually did that myself before I ever developed full-blown bulimia that fit into the box. I um tried to first control my weight and body by controlling my food and thought well becoming a vegetarian will be the first thing I'll cut up, cut out a whole food food group you yeah. know and then various other things later on and I feel that some people maybe say that they're celiac or other other things as well um, and I'm also just wondering if somebody says that they are celiac and live that lifestyle when they're not do can you then develop celiac through not having certain food groups can you then develop um intolerances to certain foods
0: okay so in terms of the the first part of the the question where you were talking about um disordered eating versus eating disorders um these things happen on a spectrum and basically in the same way it's like with diabetes with diabetes um your blood sugars start to go up and up to a certain level and at some point you cross a threshold where your blood sugar becomes so high that they say, you are now a diabetic. Prior to that, you were not a diabetic, but now you are. And I see the same thing happen in terms of eating disorders and disordered eating. You have to get so far along the spectrum before you are giving the diagnosis of an eating disorder. But if you don't have symptoms that match up clearly with the uh, symptoms that are in the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic book for diagnosing lots of, um, psychiatrists, um, psychiatric issues of which eating disorder is, is one of them or eating disorders is, is a couple of them. Um, if you don't fall into that category, you aren't given that diagnosis, even though you are clearly on that spectrum and you have issues going on. So if you don't get the diagnosis of an eating disorder, you would be described by a lot of people as having disordered eating. So having issues around food, but not to the degree that you are then given a formal diagnosis. And what I think is a problem with this is it's almost like things have to get so bad before it is actually recognized. So someone can have all the hallmark signs of being anorexic. But because their BMI is above 17.5, they're not given diagnosis. And if they're not given a diagnosis, they don't get into a treatment center. And so there's a lot of issues around this where the fact that to get a diagnosis, you have to tick so many different boxes. And there's a lot of people who are really struggling, who are kind of just dismissed and told, well, like, you know what, maybe you just need to find a different diet or something along those lines. Um, in regards to the second part of the the question or or the comments you're making, I do, I think a lot of people hide their issues around food by doing it under the guise of health. So I became a vegetarian because it is healthy when it's really just a way of restricting or I became paleo or I became low carb or I became, um, I'm avoiding gluten, um, all because they say it is for health reasons and really it is for other reasons and for ways of disguising issues that they have going on. And for a lot of people, they don't probably understand it. In the beginning, they probably might not even recognise it as that. But when they actually start to look at it and and understand what's going on, that was pretty much the reason why it started to kick off. And the, the third part in terms of your question of can you develop Um, say, celiac disease from not eating that stuff. I don't necessarily think you'll develop celiac disease, but the more that you restrict the foods that you have come in, the more likely you are that you're not getting enough calories, that your digestion is going to become downregulated. And then when you start to eat those foods, you're more likely to react to them and have trouble digesting them. And this then can often become like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, I stopped eating wheat because I told myself it wasn't good. I then have problems with my digestion now because I've been eating so low calorie, I've been eating so low carb. And now when I try and put wheat into my diet, it reacts terribly with me and see that's why I shouldn't eat it. And so often when I'm working with clients where we're trying to get them to restore their health, to get over um, their problems around food, in the beginning, their digestion isn't great. And they may suffer with a lot of gas or bloating or other digestive discomfort. And my recommendation with that stuff is, I just want you to continue eating the food. Let's try and find some things that you do better on and you can have more of that stuff, I'm okay with it. But realistically, you're going to be having problems with these foods because for so long you've been under eating and your digestion hasn't really been doing what it needs to be doing. And it hasn't been given the resources that it needs to be able to function properly. And the only way to overcome that and around that is by getting someone to continue to be eating the, the, the food and with time what they will find. And it normally takes a month, month and a half, two months, maybe a little bit longer. They start to be able to digest those foods a lot better and they start to realise that actually they don't have real issues around food. It was just the state that their body was in because of stress or worry or restriction or whatever it may be.
1: Well, thank you for answering my imperfect question so perfectly. <laughs> It's okay. (laughs) But um, another of those things is intermittent fasting. And I myself, obviously I'm into fitness and nutrition. So without like disordered eating aside, I would still look to seek things that are going to improve my health. And I've heard on loads of fitness channels and um, top fitness people talking about intermittent fasting being good for your health, you know, not as a way of dieting or losing weight. What are your thoughts on that? Because I've always been wary of it from having obviously my disordered eating background to not eat for a day, I felt like I would probably binge the whole of the next day. Um, What are your thoughts on that?
0: So I think that it can be helpful for the right person in the right circumstances. So if you look at the research, intermittent fasting does way better for men than it does for women. But I would also add to this is you have to be in the right state of health for it to be working. So if someone is really struggling, they've got very little reserves, they've been constantly coming from a place of chaotic eating, them doing intermittent fasting is just further creating a problem. So I think the person who could possibly do well on this stuff is someone who is already in fairly good health, who is already doing well in terms of their eating, in terms of making sure they're taking enough calories, they're able to exercise that they're recovering from, etc they're the people who will probably benefit from it if they are going to benefit. But if you are someone who has a history of issues around food, it's definitely not the thing I would tell them to do because it's more likely that it's going to then spiral into bad eating behaviours like they were having before in terms of binging or restricting or whatever it may be. And the analogy I always use with this stuff is There's lots of research around the fact that drinking wine is very helpful for someone um, from a health perspective and that wine drinkers uh, or drinkers live longer than non-drinkers. That may be true on paper, but if you're someone who has a history of issues around alcohol, your ability to then have that one glass of wine a night and get the benefits from it just isn't there and you're not able to moderate that stuff and what happens is you quickly spiral into having a bottle of wine a night or starting to drink a lot more etc so even though on paper there may be some benefit from it for you as an individual your ability to actually implement it and benefit from it isn't there so they shouldn't be doing it and so i would say for someone who has had issues around food intermittent fasting is the last thing I would be getting them to mm-hmm. to try, and I don't think they should be do, like delving into it at all. And for other people, in the right circumstances, possibly it could be someone that something they look into. But for me, what I find with so much of this stuff is people don't do the big stuff right. Like people aren't getting proper amounts of sleep. People aren't often getting proper amounts of good food, or getting. Uh, good self-care or all of these other things in terms of health that make a really big difference. And then they focus on something that might give them a little bit of an extra benefit, like a one or a 2% as if this is the big deal. And that's what I see in terms of intermittent fasting. It's like something that is very niche, very specific that can help someone when they're doing this long list of other things correctly. For someone who is not in that position, all it's likely to do is to push you further away from health and have you focus on something that isn't that beneficial in the whole scheme of things, and forget about things that could make a real difference to you?
1: And what are your thoughts on if it
0: fits your macros? Um, I would say so. If it fits your macros, is the idea that um, you need to find what macro ratios work best for you. So, macro ratios are how much carbs, proteins, and fats as a percentage that you eat. And so, for example, you may discover that if you have 40 percent carbs, 30 um, percent protein and then 20 percent fat or 30 percent fat, I'm, I'm probably messing up the ratios here. But if you find that right ratio, the if it fits your macros is an acronym to mean that. And within those macros, it doesn't matter what you eat. So for your carbohydrates, whether you have bread, whether you have potatoes, whether you have sweet potatoes, whether you have a squash, whether you have a banana, it doesn't matter as long as it fits your macros. And what I would say to that is, I don't think it is true. The quality of the food and the type of food that you eat is much more important where the acronym actually came from is from bodybuilders and it was for bodybuilders in a very specific time frame when they are trying to get comp ready and what it meant initially was people were asking well does it matter if I have brown rice or white rice or making these little nuance changes and what people came up with was well if it fits your macros it would be fine what people have then done is just blown that totally out of proportion to be like, oh, okay, well, it doesn't matter whether I'm drinking like a bottle of Coke versus having some um, some rice versus having some potatoes or whatever as their carb. And I don't think that that's correct. And again, it's getting into this really tiny thing. Like I think macro ratios can be important, but they can be important once someone is doing all of these other things that are really important for someone's health. If they're not, then it really pales in comparison. And what I often find is, Someone is trying to do the the macro tide of things of like getting their percentages right, and yet they're eating a thousand calories less than what their body really needs. And if you're in that situation, whether you get the macro percentages right or not is totally irrelevant because you're down a thousand calories on what your body needs. So again, it's one of those things that it's important once you've got some of the other levels or a lot of the other levels there, if someone wants to focus on it. But Like for me personally, I don't really focus on my own macros because it just makes so little difference and I just don't care about that stuff.
1: And it's an extra stress as well, isn't it? If you don't need to to have that mental space taken up with counting and weighing and measuring.
0: Totally. It makes sense if you are a bodybuilder or a physique competitor and you are going to be on stage and you are judged by like the tiniest little difference and that is your job and you are happy doing it. Like I understand within that setting, it makes sense for that uh, specific sport for the average person who is just wanting to be healthy and live a healthy and active life. It makes no sense for them to really focus on it. And
1: that's one of the reasons i think bodybuilding is really unhealthy I mean not only my own experience but I never actually did the if it fits your macros I ate regular real foods throughout the day like five six meals a day and I had people around me who were doing if it fits your macros but then they would they would want to have like a Proats party which was you know oats with chocolate and all of these things on that I wasn't allowed um, yeah. but they would have to save their macros and calories all day long so they would literally starve all day long and then to me, even from arm's length, it just looked like an old binge that I would have had before, like it's a restriction and then it's a binge. So it's not helping with people's behaviours or with choosing the right type of food because then they're saving it all up so they can have all of these unhealthy, sweet things.
0: Yeah. And look, I would totally agree with that. I, I think for a lot of people, it is very uh, unhealthy. They have a very unhealthy relationship with their, with their body for a lot of people, again, as we were talking about in terms of being a vegetarian or being uh, gluten free or whatever, it's another way to hide um, body insecurities, eating disorders, etc. So yes, I I think it is can be very problematic. I don't want to paint the picture that for everyone they fall into that category. There are people who are probably doing it in a very same way, and there are certain people who I follow and I think um, can speak to that in a very same way. But yeah, the vast majority of uh, of people within that industry or competing especially a lot among women um yeah I'm I'm pretty like wary of how how healthy they really are but also how happy they really are with their their bodies and how content they are and, and all of that side yeah. of things
1: and that's the thing with bodybuilding I thought doing bodybuilding would give me confidence (laughs) I mean standing on stage in a bikini you're practically naked you do feel quite confident doing that (laughs) but then you're actually standing there to be judged by people so if you win it's all great but then if you don't win and it's just a matter of somebody's opinion and that can just tear down your body image
0: and also it creates this unrealistic standard because you get to the stage where you look at what you look like on stage and that then in a lot of ways becomes the new norm. I talk about this a lot with clients who were like brides and they're like, oh, I want to look like I did on my wedding day. And like, what did you do to look like that on your wedding day? And they're like, I was going to this personal trainer this many times a week. I was keeping my calories really low. I barely ate carbohydrates and this whole long list of things. I'm like, there is no way that you can consistently and sustainably keep that Mm -hmm. stuff up. So the way that you looked on that day isn't realistic, but the problem is people have then seen what that looks like, and it's then hard to get that out of their head, and they think that well, that's what I should look like normally, as opposed to no, that is the real abnormal, and how you look now is more of the normal.
1: Yeah, but I think with bodybuilding, because like even you know you speak to other bodybuilders, so they do warn you, you know, you're not going to stay stage ready all year round. Your, your weight's going to fluctuate, and you, although you you, you agree with that desperately inside you're thinking hopefully you know i'll I'll manage to keep it up but then when you do start i think because you get such a body dysmorphia you don't see yourself as small as you are well you know your body's completely hard there's no fat on it at all when you start to get a tiny bit of fat you feel massive and you're not so it's totally distorted just because you don't even see how far you've gone
0: yeah and the thing is you can know something intellectually and then you can experience it very differently. Yeah. So even though someone tells you that and warns you that, et cetera, you're like, no, no, yeah, look, look I understand. or I'll, I'll be the exception and be able to keep it all year round. And when that doesn't happen, you feel, like, broken um, despite the fact that, like, you should know better. But yeah. unfortunately, you don't.
1: So I'm really aware of your time. I don't want to um, keep you here too long. Do you have time to go through a few nutrition myths?
0: Uh, yeah, one or two would be, would be fine.
1: Okay. So I just – Wanted to see if you can maybe debunk a few, um, whether they are myths or whether they're true, and just give us a bit of insight. Okay, so one of the things being eating carbs after 6 p.m., does it make you fat?
0: No, um, what I would say with that stuff is it will depend on the individual of how well that works for people. And I would say, when I say works for someone, I'm not looking at a weight perspective, I'm looking at a physiological perspective and a symptoms perspective and so for a lot of clients and I, I, I'm i including that I need to have a decent sized dinner I also need to have a decent amount of carbs coming in the evening time um, so that I can feel good so that I can sleep well what I often find for the people who are trying to follow the strategy of like eat like a king in the morning eat like a queen at lunch eat like a pauper at dinner which seems to be this uh, idea that people have got that that's How everyone should eat, and that's the better way to eat, is that people, when they're then keeping their calories and keeping their carbohydrates low in that latter part of the day, will often start to get issues around their sleep and won't be able to to sleep properly, Um, whether that's they can't get to sleep or whether they're waking up in the night, whether they're getting lots of nighttime urination. All of those things are pointing towards the fact that your body is running out of energy. Your body is then increasing stress hormones while you're sleeping, and these are part of the problems that you're now seeing as part of that so i think it is a myth that people shouldn't have carbs after 6 p.m you can play around with and see what does work best for you but when you're making that decision it should be based on your symptoms as opposed to just what happens in terms of your weight Mm
1: -hmm. and coconut oil is another one which is obviously big in the fitness industry at the moment and from my understanding it's the one with the highest smoking point so in terms of becoming cancerous when you cook with it would be a good reason to eat it but some diet plans have eat coconut oil from the spoon
0: so i look i think that coconut oil is a great fat i think it's very beneficial in lots of ways but the fact is you don't need to go totally overboard with it so there's like um, a thing called bulletproof coffee where you have coffee that you put like coconut oil and butter into and um, I think that this is just taking it way too far. So yes it is true in terms of the the high smoking point and what I typically recommend when people are doing cooking at higher temperatures, um, so they're roasting things in the oven, cooking in the oven, you are better using saturated fats for those types of cooking. So better off using things like uh, coconut oil, Or using tallow or ghee um, because they are going to have a a higher um, smoking point and so you can heat them to a higher temperature without them causing a problem so yes that is definitely true and I do encourage clients to be using coconut oil but there does come a point where you're taking in a huge amount of it and in something like fat whether we're talking about coconut oil or butter or really olive oil or any of those things they are very high in calories, and calories aren't all bad, but if you're chugging down like ladle fills of coconut oil, you are going to probably get to a point where you're taking in a huge amount of calories, and that can start to catch up with you.
1: Mm -hmm. Because in terms of fat, that's just a saturated fat, isn't it? So you'd be better off having an omega-3, 6 or 9.
0: Um, That's also then uh, like a whole other uh, interview that we could get into, Um, but most of the oils have their roles to play within the body and you need them in differing amounts. So for things like omega-3s and omega-6s, my leaning is getting those things in lower amounts um, because I don't think that you need them in huge quantities for the functioning of the body and then in higher amounts, they can start to be causing a problem. So my leanings are normally to get people to be having more of their oils or more of their fats coming from coconut oil or sorry saturated fats or monounsaturated fats um, then trying to have huge amounts of um, vegetable oils or huge amounts of omega-6s or huge amounts of fish oils or anything along those lines
1: okay just last question (laughs) yep So cow's milk, because there's a lot going on about, you know, whether you're lactose intolerant or not, that maybe we shouldn't be drinking milk that's from a cow. You know, since we've become adults, we don't actually need milk and there's too many hormones and things in it. Is it good or not to be drinking cow's milk?
0: I think it comes down to, again, and I've said this so many times through this interview, it comes down to the individual and what works for them. But there is nothing inherently wrong with milk. And the whole thing of like, we're not baby cows, we shouldn't be drinking it, I don't agree with. Um, There is some very good nutrition that comes from milk, that comes from dairy products. And I'm a big advocate of people eating those things if they tolerate them. So if they can have them and it's not causing a problem, I will encourage them to eat them. And for a lot of people, they will find that they have an upper limit where that stuff may start to be causing a problem for them. So I'll find like where that is and get them to have less, or they may find that they do better on certain types of dairy as opposed to others. So for some people, they don't do particularly well on milk, but they're okay on hard cheeses, or they're okay on having some yogurt or whatever it may be. Um, But no, I don't think that there's an issue with it. Yes, I think people should be trying to get as best quality food as they can. So be trying to get things that are going to have less of Antibiotics or less hormones pumped into them, and all of that, uh, which I agree with, but I also think that people need to work out when is that really appropriate for them. And so, if I'm seeing someone, I'm like, "You're eating a thousand calories a day. I want you to have some dairy." And their response is, "Well, but dairy has antibiotics in it, or it might have hormones in it." Like, if the if we have a choice between you eating a food that has a little bit of that stuff in it, or you eating like not eating that food and your calories or way less. I'm going to choose you eating that food with a little bit of hormones in it mm-hmm. and so people need to be looking at okay when i'm making this decision like is it at the right level like is this something that i should be concerned about given everything that i've got going on or actually is this just not a relevant um, concern for me because i just need to be getting in more of these foods or more calories or whatever it may be
1: Yay, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I can continue eating dairy.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, look, and, and as I said, like, if you eat dairy and you do well on it, then eat it. Like, I'm someone who does very well on dairy. I eat a lot of cheese. Um, I don't have any problems with it. It does really well for me. It keeps me nice and warm. I find it a great source of protein. And so, yeah, I will eat a lot of it. Um, but I know that through like my, my feedback and through paying attention to my body that that works for me. And that's what I want to do when I'm working with clients, is get them to understand those things as well.
1: Brilliant. So I'd like to thank you so much for your time today. That's okay. But just finally then, uh, where can people hear more of you?
0: Um, so my website is www.7, so 7, all spelled out, hyphen healthcom um, There I do uh, lots of lots of writing. You find lots of blog posts. I then also have a podcast called Real Health Radio, so you can find that by going to my website or you can just Google search Real Health Radio and it will come up. You can find it on like the iTunes store, et cetera. And it's a weekly podcast where like one week will be me just talking about a specific topic and the next week will be me interviewing a guest. Um, and so, yeah, there's tons of free information um, with with either of those sources. So definitely check it out.
1: If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave Nicola a review on iTunes. You can also check out the show notes and get other free content on our website, foostalfit.co.uk. If you'd like to contact Nicola, email
0: nicola at